You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning. Today's scripture is taken from Joshua 2, verses 14 to 24. And the man said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she led them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. You shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's households. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is in with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joyce. Uh, Very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. Now, earlier you heard heard an announcement about the child-minding ministry. They're looking for volunteers. Uh, If you have a heart for that, if you have uh, skills in that, uh, would you offer your services and be part of that? But I think this is also a good good juncture uh, where we want to talk about, like, you know, how we think about the children in our church. And I just want to tell us that, you know, our posture towards the children cannot be uh, out of sight, out of mind. Right? We just put them upstairs and then, you know, don't know what happened to them and later we collect them and, you know, we just have peace and quiet for one hour. Uh, that cannot be the posture of our hearts, right? Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. Uh, we are a Baptist church. We don't, we don't baptize children. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we still hold to the hope that many of them would turn to Jesus uh, even at their young age. And in that note, I think we want to also recognize the, the people who are serving upstairs right now on the third floor. Um, you know, uh, they are helping in discipling and in nurturing your children, coming alongside the parents to do that, and that's immensely valuable, all right? I don't think many of them are here now. Uh, yeah, I think we find another opportunity to really honor them. But, they are, you know, we've, we've told them to catch the service after the, after the, uh, after the, the, their service is, after the service is done later on in the day to watch the service. So what we can do, I think, is just to put our hands together, just to honor and appreciate them, and let them watch it later on, all right? Thank you. Praise God. Praise God. 
Now we're into our last sermon uh, on this series on courage. We've been looking at Joshua chapters 1 and 2. Uh, what have we learned about courage so far? All right, here's a quick recap. Firstly, courage is making the big commitment to follow God. Courage is living out that commitment daily. Secondly, true courage is found when we recognize that no one else is mighty enough, no one else is able enough to save us, to come through for us. It's only when we come to depend desperately on God, that's when we begin to experience true courage. Now this morning, this is what we're going to learn. Courage is about pursuing God's greatness. Uh, This morning, I want to challenge you. Who is this God you say you believe in? How highly do you esteem his greatness? How are you hunting down the glory of his greatness? We're going to be continuing in the second half of Joshua chapter 2. And like I've said before, in many ways, this chapter is a detour from the larger story, what if you, if you just skip, if you read Joshua chapter 1, you skip Joshua chapter 2, and you read Joshua chapter 3, you feel like nothing's wrong, nothing's missing, the just, story just flows. What the spies are doing in this chapter, it will make almost no impact on the larger conquest. But God has his purposes for this detour. And he has two purposes. In fact, the first purpose we looked at last week, it was to save Rahab and her family. Today, we'll see God's second purpose, and that is to reveal His greatness. So today, we're going to look at the story, the passage that we heard just now. We're going to look at it in two parts. Part one, hushed promises, and part two, a hearty exclamation. After that, we'll have a look at some of the takeaways from this story. Let's begin. Part one, hushed promises. You know, when we think about courage, uh, we often picture very public displays of big, boisterous action. We don't often think about courage as people whispering in the dark and hiding away and all that kind of thing. But that's how courage is mostly displayed in Joshua chapter 2. Courage takes all kinds of shapes and forms. Rahab, the prostitute, she hid the two spies on the roof. She deceived uh, the Jericho police. These are the ones hunting down the spies. And once the police had gone their way, Rahab, probably in very hushed, urgent whispers, begins to plead with the spies, pleading for her life, pleading for her family. And in that moment of tension, right, with the the spies, with, with their lives on the line, with danger lurking behind every wall, they respond like this. They say, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, I just want to point out, firstly, the quiet courage of these spies. Right? They don't say if the Lord gives us the land, but when the Lord gives us the land. And this is not like false bravado. Right? This is not positive thinking. This is not some kind of uh, name it and claim it kind of nonsense. Right? The spies are speaking their minds. They truly believe God will give them the land. 
And so they begin to make quiet, whispered, hushed promises to one another. The spies promise that no one in Rahab's household will be harmed, but Rahab has to keep her end of the bargain. There are three things she needs to do. Firstly, she has to continue to keep the spies a secret. Secondly, when Israel finally attacks, Rahab must bring her entire family into her house. If anybody goes out and they die, that's their own problem. All right, they must all remain in Rahab's house. Finally, number three, a scarlet cord, a red cord, you could say, must be tied onto the window of Rahab's house. Now, if Rahab fails to do any of these three, three things, the deal is off, right? Rahab would not receive any special protection. So Rahab and the two spies, they make these promises to one another. These are hushed promises, right? Promises with no witnesses, promises with no contracts, promises with no guarantee, right? These were desperate times. They just had to trust that their yes meant yes and their no meant no. Now, after these promises are made, Rahab gives the spies some instructions on how to avoid the Jericho police. She lowers them out of the home window. And once the spies are out of, out of the city, Rahab immediately ties the scarlet cord to the same window through which she had lowered the spies, right? It's as if Rahab is saying, let this window be a witness of how I have saved your lives, and now it's your turn to save mine. And then we kind of realize that Rahab's story ends here for now, right? Uh, the scarlet cord is just dangling from the window, and like that scarlet cord, we are also left hanging. We don't know how Rahab's story will end. Then the story switches scenes and we come to part two, which is the hearty exclamation. So the spies follow Rahab's instructions. They hide in the hills for a couple of days. They wait for their pursuers to turn back to Jericho to give up and turn back. Then they return to Joshua's camp. Now what happens next could have gone in one of two ways. Right? Joshua chapter 2 could have ended in one of two ways. Let me share with you the first way. All right? So this is version 1. The spies return to camp. They are exhausted. Maybe they're a little hungry. They're just relieved that they made it back alive. When they enter the camp, they notice that all the Israelites have gathered along the Jordan River. Right? They've assembled according to their tribes. It's a, it's a massive gathering. And then the spies realize that they've actually returned later than expected. Everyone's been waiting for them, right? And they're just waiting for these spies to return so that they can finally go to war. And then as the spies make their way to HQ, right, to, to make their report to Joshua, you find that their heads are hanging low, their eyes are on the ground, and they're trying not to make eye contact with, with anyone around them because the Israelites are glaring at the two spies. Why so long? Why are we waiting? Why, why, why you waste our precious time? And the spies, you know, they, they avoid all that, and then they finally reach Joshua's tent. And Joshua asks them, well, how did your mission go? What did you learn? And the spies, again, with eyes on the ground, they mumble sheepishly, you know, not much. Um, our, our mission didn't exactly go as we planned. But Joshua wants to make sure. So Joshua asks them a series of questions. What's the size of Jericho's army? Don't know. Is there any weaknesses in Jericho's wall? Don't know. Who, you know what, what kind of man is the king of Jericho? Don't know. Can you at least tell me how this king looks like? Don't know. And Joshua is like, what happened, guys? What's going on? 
And the spies tried to explain that, you know, when they got to Jericho, they were immediately discovered and they didn't have opportunity to find out a lot about, uh, about what's going on in Jericho. And Joshua is angry, but he kind of sighs and he says to the spies, well, you know, I'm sure you tried your best. Uh, at least you guys made it back safely. And the spies nod and they say, yeah, 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 praise God, praise God, right, praise God. Now, that's version one, right? That's how things could have gone. That's how Joshua chapter 2 could have ended. The whole mission could have just been a meaningless detour, a total waste of time. All that it would have done was to delay that military campaign that they have to do in a, by a few days. But what we find is that that's not what really happened. Right? That's not how Joshua chapter 2 ends. So here's chapter, uh, version 2. And this is what really happened with some holy imagination thrown in. So like I said earlier, the spies return to camp. They're tired, a little hungry. They see the huge host of Israel along uh, the, the Jordan River, the whole army of Israel, tribe by tribe, company by company. They know that these guys have been waiting a couple of days. But as the spies walk past the legions of Israelite soldiers, one by one, the soldiers begin to stand. Their eyes are fixed on these two spies because these two men, their heads are held high. Their eyes shine with purpose. Their faces radiate courage. And these spies, they look like men of valor, men of war, ready for battle. They're dignified, resolute, noble. And then finally, the two spies come to Joshua and Joshua asks them, well, how did it go? And the first thing these spies say to Joshua has nothing to do with enemy intelligence, nothing to do with the geography of the promised land, nothing to do about their, their narrow escape from Jericho. The first thing the spies say to, Jer uh, to Joshua is this, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now, when he heard this, Joshua must have remembered his own spy mission with Caleb. Those many years ago, this was during Moses' time. And Joshua must have remembered what a failure that mission was, right? Not because the spies at that time were incompetent or because they failed to thoroughly investigate the land, but because they knew, even though they knew how to tactically read the situation, they failed to get a sense of what God was up to. But these two spies, they were truly courageous men. They not only perceived the situation, they also perceived God's activity, God's purposes in that situation. And now those two spies returned to Joshua and they have given their heartiest exclamation. God is in this. He has already done it. We've got the land. It's ours. And by the way, uh, the enemies are all scared, gutless because of us. Joshua, let's do this. And that sets the tone for Israel as they begin their conquest. Now, you can imagine Joshua standing before all the assembled legions of, of Israel with one spy on each side, and he repeats the spy's exclamation word for word, and as the people hear, they roar. They are ready for battle. Now, that's the picture we get as Joshua 2 comes to a close. And it's an amazing story. But what do we learn from this? What is the Lord teaching us? What must we take away? Now, I believe there are three things 
we must take away from our passage this morning. Firstly, no courage, no greatness. Now, I'm not talking about our greatness here. I'm talking about our experience of God's greatness. Now, what was God's purpose for bringing these spies on this massive detour? We heard just now it was to save Rahab and her family, but the main reason was for God to reveal his greatness. The spies, they went through the most life-threatening situations. They found the least likely ally in the prostitute Rahab. They made it back to Joshua by the skin of their teeth, yet the report they make to Joshua is full of a God-centered confidence. God has given us the land. Now, where did the spies get such a perspective? People, they knew that what they had experienced, it wasn't luck, it wasn't a coincidence, it wasn't out of good fortune. This was God. God who is mighty to save, who is awesome to deliver, and who is faithful to provide. And their report to Joshua was not so much about the weakness of the land, but the greatness of their God. Now, here's the thing. If, if the spies had never taken up courage to go on this mission, they and all of Israel would have missed out on seeing the greatness of God in a fresh way. Now, question for us people. In your eyes, is God still great? Are you still eagerly, hungrily, seeking, praying, looking for God to reveal His greatness to you in a fresh way? Or do you find that you've become like kind of jaded? Right? You've like kind of grown up as a Christian. That was for younger, immature days. How do you feel like this is all there is to God? There's nothing more. Now, people, this is difficult for me to say, but in our church, my sense is that perhaps God has become like a circus lion to us. He's big, he's scary, but he's so tame. He's so predictable. He roars when he's supposed to roar. He jumps through the hoop of fire when he's supposed to jump. He sits when he's supposed to sit. And yeah, he's great for a circus lion, but in the larger scheme of things, he's not that great. In fact, he's become quite boring. Now, my sense is that maybe we've boxed God up so much that he fits so comfortably into our self-oriented lives. We live how we want, and God has a little compartment in our lives, a little room, and we kind of visit him every now and then, and he's a circus lion. He's a lion on a leash. People, that's what I sense where we may be standing as a church, and it's scary. But I believe the Lord is inviting us to draw close to Him, to come to Him in repentance, to step back into the arena with Him so that we can truly behold Him, not from a distance, but up close. And the only way we're going to really behold His greatness is through courage. Courage to repent, right? Repentance is more than just admitting you're wrong. It's more than saying you're sorry. Repentance is about making a detour, even a U-turn. 
When was the last time you truly said yes to God? When was the last time you truly pursued God's will for you with no other safety net but God himself? No plan B, no backup plan. Without no thinking that, yeah, you know, this season is for my family. You know, this season is for my career. This season, the focus is my health. But every season of your life is indisputably God's season. Your career is dispensable because there are eternal riches to be made. In your family, God is the father, the head of the household. He calls the shots. Your health is a momentary vapor. It comes, it goes, but the word of the Lord stands forever. People, are you hungry to know the greatness of God? Or have you concluded that you really know all there is to know about God's greatness? Now, if you want your life to be an unveiling of the majesty and the mystery of God's greatness, then you're going to need courage. Courage to say yes to God and courage to keep saying yes to Him no matter how many times it takes, because there's still more to God's glory. You want to go deeper. You want to see him up close. You want his roar to ring in your ears and to resonate through your life. People, where there is courage, there will be an encountering of God's greatness. But where there is no courage, then God's greatness remains hidden. Now, that's what the spies teach us. That's what David and Goliath teaches us. Daniel in the lion's den, Esther and the king, Noah in the ark, Moses in the burning bush, and so on and so on and so on. That's what the Bible teaches us. Saying yes to God means savoring his greatness. But where there is no courage, there will be no experience of his greatness. In Revelation 21, God himself says, the one who conquers, right, that's courageous language, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. At the end of history, those who draw closest to God, those who behold his glory, those who share in his greatness as his children, these are the courageous ones. But those who reject courage, those whose response to God is frequently no, whose lives are built upon the safe paths of this world, they will be furthest from God because in hell, they never again enjoy the greatness of God. Now, this is our first takeaway. It's a sobering one. But I call us, be hungry for the greatness of God. Courageously say yes to Him no matter how many times it takes so that you can behold more of his glory. But where there is no courage, you will not see his greatness. Now, you may be thinking, look, you know, this is good for you maybe, but I'm not that kind of courageous person. Uh, I'm definitely not courageous when it comes to an, uh, my invisible God's invisible kingdom. So where do I find that courage? Now, my answer to you is also our second takeaway which is this, follow the scarlet cord. Now remember, the scarlet cord has been dangling from Rahab's window, right? We've, been, we've all been left hanging, not knowing what happens to, to Rahab's story, what happens to her life. Now, the thing is that n- neither Rahab nor the spies have any idea how God is going to come through. 
right? They probably were thinking that after Israel conquers Jericho through their military might, then they would let Rahab and her family go, right? They would spare their lives. But God has his own plans, and he's about to reveal his greatness to all Israel, and especially to Rahab. Now, many of you already know how the mighty walls of Jericho will come tumbling down. It has nothing to do with military might, nothing to do with strategy. The people of Israel courageously trust God's commands and the walls, without a single attack, come crashing down. Now, it's a miracle. It's completely by the power of God. But the bigger miracle is that Rahab's home, which was part of the wall, it doesn't fall. That section of the wall where the scarlet cord was dangling, it remains intact. Rahab's home is untouched. And I think that's when Rahab understood, you know, initially she thought she was just making a deal with the spies, but now she realizes her deal was with God. And God had kept his promise to Rahab and her household. And what could Rahab say? But God is great. Now, Rahab would then go on to join the people of Israel. She would marry an Israelite. She would start a family there. And after a couple of months later, she would join all of Israel for the yearly celebration of the Passover. And as she hears their story, how in Egypt, the Israelites had applied the blood of a lamb on their doorposts and how they had kept their families indoor, in some sense, shielded by the blood on the doorposts and how the angel of death passed over Their households and the people of Israel were spared from the destruction that fell upon the rest of Egypt. As Rahab hears all this, I imagine she would have sat up. And a chill would have gone down her spine and she might have turned to her husband and said, Honey, I think I had a a Passover too. I also had to keep my family indoors. I also had to put something outside my house facing the direction of God's oncoming wrath. And all of Jericho was destroyed, but the destruction passed over my household. And we were all spared. And with tears welling up in our eyes, Rahab would have declared, God is great. Now Rahab would have repeated this story, the story of the scarlet cord, again and again. But then came the time when Joshua would die and Rahab would die and everyone of that generation would die and there arose a generation that did not really care for God's greatness. And they rebelled against God, they did what every other nation was doing and Israel fell into darkness. But during that time, Rahab's son remained faithful to the Lord. And her son would meet and marry a Moabite woman, a foreigner Uh, who, like Rahab, had become loyal to the God of Israel. And that woman's name is Ruth. And from Ruth would come Israel's most courageous and celebrated king, David. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus' family tree is kind of laid out for us, we see all of their names there. Matthew 1, verse 5 to 6, it says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. But right at the end of that chapter, right at the end of that whole family tree, is Jesus. And as we remember how Jesus would go to the cross to die for all sinners, past, present, future, the words that the spies had said to Rahab, it comes back to us. It kind of haunts us. 
right? They had said to, to Rahab, our lives for yours, even to death. You know, Rahab had risked her life to save theirs. They felt like they owed her their lives. But yet again, it is Rahab who saves them once more. Because out of Rahab comes Jesus. And Jesus would use almost those same words for us, for the spies, and he would say, my life for yours, even to death. Jesus became the true Passover lamb. His blood rewrites our stories. It gives us a new destiny. But Jesus also became the true hiding place for all who hide in him. God's destruction passes over us. Now, people, don't you see? What God did through this big detour in Joshua chapter 2, it not only saved Rahab, but it also saved all of us. Rahab had no idea but when she was pleading for her family, she was symbolically pleading for all of us as well. And when God answered her plea, he not only saved her, but he secured our salvation as well. And this was thousands of years ago, long before we were born, long before our family settled in Singapore, long before Sangnila Otama. Right? God had already ordained Joshua chapter 2 as a glorious detour so that all of us would be saved through Rahab's son, Jesus. And if we get this, then this salvation becomes our starting point. This is where we can say, even for the first time, God is great. Now we know that God's eyes are upon us. Now we know that he has already decided, even as early as Joshua chapter 2, to deliver us from destruction. Now we know that the scarlet cord was dangling in Jesus' direction. And not only that, but the scarlet cord points towards us too. That the same courageous blood that flowed in Rahab, that flowed in Ruth, that flowed in David, that flowed in Jesus, now flows in all of us. And if you ever wonder where courage comes from, follow the scarlet cord. It has a story to tell. And that story will tell you that God is for you. That story will tell you that all of us who believe in Jesus, Christ-like courage already flows in our veins. So we've received the call to courage. No courage, no greatness. We've found the source of courage as we follow the scarlet cord. Now, how must we respond? We come to our last takeaway. Commit to courage. This year is a significant year for our church. It's our 40th year. Uh, it's the year we are kick-starting our church planting vision proper. It's the first time we are launching so many missions destinations at one time. And this is also the year where we're going to be doing a church-wide major reshuffle of both the sales ministry and the young adults emerge ministry. And some of you, as you hear all this, you may be wondering, like, why are we making so many big changes in the same year? I mean, we're very practical people, right? So all these things that I've talked about, it sounds like it's going to take a lot of time. It sounds like it's going to require a lot of money. It sounds like it's a lot of discomfort and adjustment. Now, the reason for all these changes is, of course, strategic, right? We want to strengthen our church for this church planting vision. Currently, we don't know very much about church planting. So what do we do? We go on mission trips. We get exposed. Right now, our cell groups are too big. 
community has become harder to build. We are struggling to raise new leaders. Our identity as a gospel-centered church across the generations is not being felt tangibly at the cell group level. So what do we do? A renewal of the cell's ministries is in order. And this is absolutely necessary if we truly want to become a vibrant church poised to plant churches. So those are the strategic reasons why we're doing all these things. But I believe that what is on God's heart for us is that we come to a depth, that we catch a greater conviction, we restore a higher elevation of the greatness of our God, of His power, of His faithfulness. And as we behold God's greatness, we will come to realize that we are not only sinners saved by grace, but we are soldiers spurred by glory. But this is only going to happen if this church, if that means you and me and all of us, make that commitment to courage. Now, what does it mean to commit to courage? I'm going to give you three things. Firstly, Embrace God's detours for your life. Many of us, uh, we've come to know many of us are going through a detour of suffering. Right? Maybe your health is failing you. You have, you have to put up with discomfort and with pain maybe every day. You feel weak. You may have lost some sense of independence. You can no longer go where you want to go. You can no longer do what you want to do. You can no longer eat what you want to eat. Uh, this may be true for the elderly in our church. This may be true also for some of us who are younger. And maybe your suffering has come to define not only the way you live, but who you are as a person. Now, for those of us facing this detour of suffering, would you embrace the purposes God has for you in this painful detour? The evangelist Billy Graham, he died at the age of 99. At the age of 92, he struggled with Parkinson's disease. He became wheelchair-bound. He began to lose control of his motor skills. At times, he would just shake in his wheelchair. He lost his ability to lead. He lost his ability to speak. And that prompted him to come before the Lord and pray, Lord, I've lost all my usefulness. Why don't you just take me home? Now, at that time, Billy Graham would still turn up at his local church Sunday after Sunday, every morning, sitting in his wheelchair, sometimes just shaking. One Sunday, he felt the Lord responding to his prayer, telling him, Billy, every time you show up, you testify to the faithfulness of God. Billy Graham embraced this detour. He discovered the purpose of the Lord in the midst of his suffering. People committing to courage means doing the same thing. Embracing the purposes that God has for you on this painful detour. Now, that's one kind of detour. For some others of us, God may be putting you through the detour of desires put on hold. Right? Uh, what were you know, some desires that you had? as a young, bright-eyed Christian. Maybe it was to see your family saved, all of them. Maybe it was to make an impact for the gospel at your workplace. Maybe it was to serve Him in a full-time capacity in some form or another. 
Just this week, I remembered that as a young Christian, my dream was always to enter into full-time ministry, not as a pastor, but as a missionary. But along the way, I grew up, right? I came to realize that I'm not missionary material. Uh, I'm not as loving or as tough or as, you know, as adaptable that, as I thought I was as a younger person. And those are, of course, valuable qualities for missionary. And then the Lord led me into pastoral ministry instead. But though I've grown up, I'm still ever only God's child. And I've found that whenever I hear about the nations, how they remain ignorant of the gospel, how some of them have never heard the name of Jesus, how multitudes are rushing headlong into hell, my heart breaks. And sorry. My wife has a bigger heart for missions. She's a bigger heart for the nations. In fact, before we got together, I, I had to tell her, you know, because I'm a local church guy, right? If you're going to marry me, you're going to get together with me, you've got to accept that probably you won't be able to do missions in a significant way. And she agreed to that. We got married. But she's still hoping. She's still hoping that one day both of us can still be of use to the nations. She's praying that God will lead even our daughter to the mission field. But God has yet to fulfill those desires that he put upon our hearts. Sorry. Now, how about you? What are your idealistic, hopeful, even naive dreams that God has placed upon your heart? Maybe even as a young Christian. How did you want to change the world? What did you want to accomplish for him? How did you want to leave your mark as a follower of Jesus Christ? What did you hope would be your legacy for the gospel? Bring those desires back to the Lord. Embrace the detour. God has placed those desires in your heart. It's not fulfilled yet, but God is the one who will bring it to pass in his time. Now, there are many other kinds of detours besides the detour of suffering, the detour of, of desires deferred, but I believe that there's one more that I need to highlight because maybe some of us have yet to embrace the full detour of the Christian life. Now, the cross demands a complete U-turn in our lives, but some of us are waiting for everything to just magically fall into place, everything to just... You know, this path, this life just to settle in nicely before you make that commitment to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And I want to tell you, that's not how it works. Jesus is calling you now. And this is the biggest commitment, the biggest detour you'll ever make in your lives. But there's never going to be a better time. You may be waiting, I don't know, for your parents' approval. You may be waiting to see how much fulfillment you can get from this world. You may be seeing how far you can get in your career, in your plans for your life. But this is where you need to exercise courage. Saying yes to God means embracing the U-turn of faith. And that has more to do with courage than with finding the right time to do this. That's the first expression of committing to courage. The second expression of committing to courage is embracing God's mission. Joshua chapter 2 is a powerful reminder that 
God is the savior of the world. God goes the distance to bring the lost to himself. Now, in the same way, have we embraced this mission? Do we carry a burden for souls? Are our daily prayers simply for a smooth day ahead? Or are we praying for names, for lives, for people groups, for nations to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus? Now, in June, we're going to be sending teams to Yangon, Kuala Lumpur, Kandy, Kandy, and Sapporo. Every one of these cities are less than 10% Christian. I know some of us joke that for a you know, mission trip destination, Sapporo, Japan, uh, really sounds like a really nice holiday spot. Let me tell you, Japan has the worst Christian population. Only 0.5% of Japan is Christian. People, we've got to embrace God's mission that all would hear the gospel, that all the Rahabs of the earth would enter his kingdom. And in that way, we must commit to courage. We want to take up courage to pray for the lost in our midst. We want to pray for the lost in the nations. Take up courage to give to missions, to the church planting fund to go to our unbelieving loved ones, exposing them to the gospel, exposing them to Christian community, and to go also to the nations. Now, finally, the third aspect of committing to courage is embracing God's greatness. Why bother living courageously for God? Why not live comfortably with the world? Because we want more of God's greatness. Because we have had enough of a dull, sleepy, pathetic understanding of God, we want to delve deeper into His greatness. And so we want to say yes to God. Yes, I will repent. Yes, I will obey. Yes, I will go because yes, I want to see more of God's greatness. People, let's make this commitment to courage as a church. The courageous blood of Jesus already flows in our veins. And the reality is we need courage to face the detours in our own lives. The lost and the broken in this world, they're waiting for us to take up courage. And our own souls long to see the greatness of our God revealed. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are desperate for you, Lord. We desperately need a glimpse of your face. Teach us again to pray, show me your glory, your God. Forgive us for becoming so laid back, Lord. So soft in the luxuries and the, the comforts, the so-called stability we find in this world around us, that our hearts as well has grown so numb. Help us, Father. We believe that you've given us the spirit of Jesus and then the courage that he had to 
go to that cross to take our place, to give up all the riches of heaven. That courage now lives in us because Jesus is risen and he reigns in glory and strength. Help us, Father. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg. 